Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're obsessed with her, and you're obsessed with her daughter! Right, easy, Geraldo. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking jocular homosocial camaraderie. We're talking overdetermined phallic signifiers. And we're talking creamy liquid knockout drugs. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking bum 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 oh bum my bum bum. <laughs> Why is it so loud? <laughs> I was sorry, everyone. We were talking creature from the Black Lagoon, um, one of the most classic Universal monsters. And yeah, I was watching the uh, the featurette that came with my Blu-ray of this movie, and this the guy was like, "Yeah, I think they used that that piece of music about a hundred and thirty times in the movie." <laughs> yeah. It definitely feels like it. It also feels like it's about 50 times louder than any of the dialogue. <laughs> they got to scare you, man. That's how they did jump scares back in the 50s. Indeed. Yes, they definitely rely on the music to bring in the scares in this film. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, everyone, the Creature from the Black Lagoon. I don't know. Joe, this was your first time watching this, correct? This was indeed, yes. I had heard all about it, but I had never seen it because I'm... I'm actually not very well versed in the Universal Monster films, so I know mm. of them. I've read a bunch of things about them, but I haven't actually seen most of them. This is actually where um, being a, I'm going to use the word prominent podcast, although that may sound like we're in blowing smoke up our asses. Um, <laughs> it, 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 no, but that's where it's like, I, I, we talked about it a little bit in the old Dark House, because it's like entering these classic films when... Right, because uh, I'm I'm in the same boat as you. You know, I am not as well versed in Universal monsters or like these classic horror staples, and it's like an embarrassing blind spot where I'm like, I don't really want to tell people that I haven't seen some of these films. <laughs> <laughs> so we're covering it on our podcast for all of you to listen in on. <laughs> well, and, and, and so yeah, no, that's why. So if we mess up something, I mean, feel free to correct us. Um, oh sure, be nice about it. <laughs> no, I, I actually, um, I, I took it upon myself because I bought that, uh, like, the it was like the Universal Essentials. They did a, a, a mm. Blu-ray release of Dracula, Frankenstein, Wolfman, Bride of Frankenstein, Phantom of the Opera. Um, Invisible Man. Invisible Man, this, and, like, one other thing. So, I, for Bloody, I mean, God, years ago, I was like, oh, yeah, let me just rank all the monsters because, you know, listicles are always a hot thing. So, oh, sure. I, I just basically watched all eight of these movies in a weekend. Okay. It's really oh. fun. <laughs> Invisible Man's the best. But yeah, yeah so I, I, that's really the bulk of my experience with these films. I did not grow up watching them. I definitely as a kid, I was like, oh, it's black and white. I don't want to watch of those course, things. Yeah. <laughs> Little did I know. It's a valid... Okay, I was going to say, it's a valid point. It's not a valid point. But part of this, I think, is that... <sighs> It's hard to be a horror fan because so often people are very nostalgic for particular decades and it's often tied to when we're growing up, right? So mm -hmm. when we're talking about movies from the 30s and 40s and 50s, I don't know about you, but I'm not surrounded by a lot of people who are actively 
loving and talking about these films like a lot of people have to seek these out as part of their horror education but it's not as easy as saying oh well this was playing on tbs all the time or hbo when i was growing up right right i mean i think some people maybe have that experience or they might have been formally like gifted these by grandparents and said hey watch these movies that i watched when i was your age but for me like i didn't have anybody so I was really only watching horror films from the 80s to contemporary times. No, I think that's a really good point. I'm saying, like, the only thing I can think of is like, you know, these would have shown on like Turner Classic Movies, I guess, maybe. But right. again, like 10-year-old Trace wasn't watching Turner Classic Movies. Oh, really? <laughs> you didn't have like a Werther's original in your pocket or something? I know. That's like, If I ever had kids, I would make sure to show them these types of things before I started showing them more modern things. So they could like kind of age with cinema if it makes any sense but i'll never be having yeah. kids so that that is irrelevant at this point well please educate your dogs and begin with the universal monster movies <laughs> no it was actually really fascinating because one of the one of the uh, interview pieces that i saw about this you know the guy was like this is the last of like the big universal monsters and it was yes. released in the 50s 1954 of course and like DVDs and I'm sorry, DVDs, VHS didn't exist. Like you could not nope. watch. So you, you couldn't go and watch um, mm -hmm. Frankenstein or Dracula whenever you wanted. And they also hadn't been made available on TV yet. So like this is all you had if you were like craving more universal monsters. But like this movie was a huge hit. Like um, I, there are varying degrees of box office numbers that I found for this. So I'm just going to say it was successful enough to get two sequels. Um, Literally right. like in the two years after this movie came out. Mm -hmm. But I also think that the fact that this is a trilogy makes it a bit more easy to consume because I will say that one of the things that I always found intimidating about something like Frankenstein or the Wolfman is that they were always in box sets with all their sequels and there were so many of them and they weren't numbered. <laughs> so it was like, I was like, wait, yeah, what? Okay. <laughs> well, and also I think a lot of people feel that there are some hidden gems in some of those sequels, but that really you were getting depreciating returns for a lot of those franchises, whereas this is a tight trilogy, right? I mean, I think if you're not interested in an aquatic horror monster villain, then mm. maybe this isn't your bag. But for the folks who like the creature from the Black Lagoon, it's like, yeah, these are your three films. I mean, maybe that also makes people very sad because they realize oh i don't have eight movies like some of the other <laughs> franchises and obviously we haven't seen a lot of uh creature from the black lagoon remakes although people keep trying they oh just never God. seem to get off the ground there i mean when we go through the production we will go through some of these remake attempts because there is no shortage of them i mean guillermo del toro mm -hmm. was trying to do it for so long that he was like fuck all y'all i'm just gonna turn into the shape of water <laughs> yeah which arguably totally works oh it 100 percent does it's just if if you watch creature from the black lagoon and you do view it as like i mean i don't know about you i empathize with the creature very much this guy this dude's just trying to live his life and here come these people that are just like nope fuck you we're gonna take you we're gonna study you mm -hmm. it's very much an eco horror film on top of being an aquatic horror film oh sure yeah Back in the 50s, when that was not really a thing that people were overly concerned about. I mean, this is the 50s, so yes, we were also getting a lot of fears about nuclear uh, exposure. So this mm -hmm. was the period of, you know, them and I think the attack of the 50-foot woman and other issues where it's like, well, we need to be mindful about how we're destroying the environment. But it wasn't, oh, there's a, a man mermaid swimming around in the lagoon and we need to be careful not to piss him off. It'd be like, Oh, have we nuked him? No, that we don't need to worry about him. 
and that's kind of what I like about the the, the, the Gill Man too. It's like, oh, no, this is a primordial being. He's been around like since the creation of the Earth. I'm sorry, since <laughs> as the opening vo- voiceover says, <laughs> since oh, God. I'm not expecting that. <laughs> since God created the heaven and the Earth. <laughs> uh huh. Didn't expect my horror film to begin with the creation story trace. I I, I jaw dropped. I mean, but it's not surprising, right? Like these are conservative times. So the fact that we even get like Julie Adams in her swimsuit swimming through this stuff. I mean, like this is before Psycho and having Janet Lee in her bra was controversial at the time. So it was just kind of like, yeah. ooh, look at this movie getting all sexy. Which I'm sure. A lot of sexual undertones in this movie, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which is, of course, why we're covering it. Yes. And everyone, if you don't think there's a queer reading for this, um, we've got some fun stories for you. Maybe not stories, but <laughs> fun readings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Creamy white goo. You betcha. Well, okay. So l- let's talk about this film a little bit. So, you know, th- this is coming 20, 25 years after the big heyday. You know, the 30s is when we got Dracula and Frankenstein. Wolfman was the 40s, and I'm sorry, Bride of Frankenstein was the 30s as well. But basically, the the origins for this film date all the way back to 1941, when producer William Allen was attending a dinner party during the filming of Citizen Kane. And (laughs) Allen was actually in the film playing one of the reporters. Um, Have you seen Citizen Kane, by the way? Yes, I have. Okay, I just I had to watch it for film school because, of course, you did, and yeah. I appreciate it. I respect it. It did so many things for cinema. I never want to watch it again. Oh, I actually quite like it, but yeah, it's not a kind of film that I'm just going to throw on every day. It was that one in Touch of Evil were the other two. Actually, I think that's Orson Welles too. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Anyway, so at this dinner party, Mexican cinematographer Gabriel Figueroa, he told him about a myth of a race of half-fish, half-human creatures in the Amazon River. Um, Alan wrote story notes titled The Sea Monster 10 years later. I'm not sure why it took him 10 years, but it kind of has to do... So he he used Beauty and the Beast as inspiration, Mm -hmm. as well as the plot of the 1925 silent film The Lost World, in which a group of scientists come to a hidden land populated by prehistoric monsters. In December of 52, so again, I, I don't know what was going on in the 10 years since he heard the story, but I guess he was like, all right, that one dinner party, there was that fish thing. <laughs> it's just been living in my mind rent-free for the last decade. <laughs> I mean, I wonder if it was like they're running out of ideas, right? Because I mean, the 50s are also big into like sci-fi alien shit. This is correct, yeah. The director of this film, Jack Arnold, like he was selected because of his work on It Came From Outer Space. Ah, uh, okay. So in December 52, Maurice Zim expanded this into a treatment, which Harry Essex and author Ross rewrote into The Black Lagoon. That was the original title for this film. Following the success of the 3D film House of Wax in 1953, Jack Arnold was hired to direct the film using the same format because this is also the peak of not only science fiction films, but also 3D. One of the things that I actually thought was really interesting, though, is the description of this because another notable thing about Black Lagoon is that it uh, is its underwater um, cinematography. It is. Oh, yes. That for me is the standout by far. Isn't it? It's so awesome. And so yeah. listening to them, one of the guys is like, I was there in a theater in 1954 watching this movie. Imagine like a cube of water that you can just like reach into. That's what this felt like. You're like, you're looking into an aquarium in the, mo- in the movie screen. It sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. So the script, of course, called for an object of the creature's affection. That was like a mandate they had to have in the script. We had to have a woman that mm-hmm. the creature was lusting after sometimes. Naturally, we, yes. we could debate that, you know, as we go into <laughs> it. 
In those days, though, because it's the studio system, studios just assigned their actors uh, movies to do. And Julie Adams was honestly a bit bummed that she was like, oh, fuck, I'm doing a science fiction horror movie about this creature. God, where's my career going? <laughs> to the stars, baby. Ironically enough, this is the movie that she's most well known for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think she's fine with it now. But yeah, so, okay, now I'm going to get technical with you, Joe, so you got to bear with me. Okay. For 3D filming, and I don't, do you, I don't know much about this. I don't know how much it's changed nowadays because I just, I, I don't pay attention to it. But for the 3D filming, two interlocked cameras filmed scenes from two slightly different perspectives. The lightweight underwater version of the 3D rig was especially designed for the film by cameraman Scotty Welburn. In theater, so it's not only like, okay, we're filming it this way. You also have to go to your theaters and be like, hey, you also have to show it this way, which is actually a problem that the sequel ran into where they, they didn't have like the most up-to-date methods of showing 3D. So mm-hmm. a lot of the 3D for the sequel, Revenge of the Creature, looked bad, and they were like, oh, they filmed this poorly in 3D when it was actually the theater's faults. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, in theaters, precisely synchronized projectors overlapped the images, which were fused into three dimensions by the use of polarizing filters. All first unit shots, so first unit is, of course, the things with the actors, with the lines of dialogue, with the main story beats. All of those were filmed on the backlot in Universal. So anything that's above the water, even if it's like the boat, the Rita on the quote-unquote river, mm-hmm. that's all filmed in a backlot in Universal. Oh, sure. Yeah. But anything underwater is filmed in Wakula Springs, Florida. <laughs> and every single actor underwater was a stunt double. The Gill Man even had his own actor uh, for underwater, and I'll get to that in a mm-hmm. minute. But they filmed in Wakula Springs because the owner of the springs had protected it and it was completely and totally undeveloped, making for a perfect filming location. Oh, wow. Okay. Not, I mean, I was going to say, it doesn't really look like the Amazon, but I guess the above yeah. water stuff is all in the lot, so they make it look like the Amazon. Because underwater, you just... Again, it's the magic of editing, right? You can't tell it's a completely different space. Except for that one part where the ship, like, basically busts into a tree branch and you're like, oh, that's a tree branch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, that sneaky, sneaky fish man. So Jack Arnold did personally direct all the Hollywood scenes, but they filmed the underwater scenes concurrently. So anything done underwater had a completely different director, and that was James C. Mm. Havens. Okay. When we get into the creature itself, because I think, again, the, the besides the underwater scenes, the big thing is the design of the creature, the makeup effects, and how this man looks, or this creature looks, not the man, I'm sorry. The head of the studio, Ed Mole, had a weird idea for what the look of the creature should have been. It was going to be more eel-like and smooth, with less bumps around it, which coincidentally is kind of the design they use for the creature in the third film the creature walks among us right and also shape of water yes right which i actually prefer this kind of warty design they have for him right now yeah he's got a bit more character Mm-hmm. So Bud Westmore was the he- was Universal's head of makeup, who would replace the legendary Jack Pierce. Unlike Pierce, Westmore supervised a large creative staff. But and I don't maybe you've heard this. I don't know if you have. The look of the creature was created by Millicent Patrick. Over like the, the in the fifty years since the film's release, had basically been rendered invisible by time because Westmore took sole credit for the design of the creature. She clearly had a lot to do with the sketching, with sketching the concepts of the creature, and went on tour to promote the film. But people have the impression that her contribution was kind of buried by Westmore. And if actually, for this is for you and for listeners, if you want to hear more about this, I recommend y'all check out the book The Lady from the Black Lagoon, Hollywood Monsters and the Lost Legacy of Millicent Patrick, uh, which is written by Mallory O'Meara. It just came out a couple years ago. Yeah, to like rapturous reviews. Right? I mean, again, classic case of a man bearing a woman's success and claiming it as his own. Oh, yeah. Tale as old as time in Hollywood. 
<laughs> so filling in the web feet of the Gillman on land was Ben Chapman in the first film. So every film had a different actor playing the Gillman on land. But Riku Browning was playing the creature for all of the underwater shots in all three films. And we talked about it before when we cover older films about how much work goes into these things. And it's like, Mm -hmm. it's not that there's less work done today, but it's just a different type of work. And the dedication. So Chapman, for the above water scenes, he would sweat through 14-hour days, trapped inside the airtight molded sponge rubber costume during filming in Universal City. The suit is a big one-piece body stocking where they sculpted everything and they, they put on the suit. The actors could not gain or lose weight during the production. Otherwise, they, would ha- they couldn't fit into the suit or it would be loose on them. Right. It took two to three hours to get the suit on. Yeah. Because the director wanted the Gillman to glide on land, just like he would glide in water, he would put 10-pound weights on the bottom of the costume's feet to make sure that the actor could not lift his feet too high when walking on the land. Oh, wow. And also, uh, meanwhile, uh, for underwater scenes, Riku Browning had to hold his breath for up to four minutes at a time, and he also couldn't allow air bubbles to escape his mouth and float up from the suit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I was paying attention to that, because you can clearly see the the david and mark characters because they've got the air regulators you know you can see the bubbles constantly going but the gillman makes no there, there's nothing happening there because he's breathing through them gills yeah exactly that is something that the, that is a detail they would forget for the sequels um the gillman freely has bubbles flying out of his gills because <laughs> i guess they figured fuck it we've got people ready to come see it so let's just do it right so the other big thing with this film is the score um, so again, we've already mentioned the titular theme, the titular theme, whatever, the bum bum bum, which is used with flutter tongue trumpet, which I thought was very funny um, that that is a thing that exists. But basically, every time you see the creature, those three notes will play. And yes. it really got me thinking about not just in the score, but also the visuals, of course, of how much this movie clearly influenced Steven Spielberg's Jaws. Okay. I mean, again, we, we'll talk about it later, but when we get to the the, the, the infamous swimming scene with Kay and the right. creature, like, there's a lot of shots there that remind me of Jaws. But also, the roar of the creature, um, a distorted version of it was used for the truck in Steven Spielberg's film Duel. Oh, really? That's fun. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, clearly he was paying attention to this. Um, I mean, he's a kid that probably would have, been, would have grown up on this film and seen it in the theaters. Right. In the 50s, yeah. Yeah, but um, because uh, the, a surprising amount of this film doesn't have dialogue because of all the underwater scenes. And so I love that this wasn't even an option. So they were like, well, because we didn't want the audience to listen to Bubbles, we had to overlay the, the, those underwater scenes with score. And I was like, were you not going to do that already? <laughs> <laughs> so the underwater music was actually a composite score. And basically in a composite score, the music within each individual segment is independent and distinct from music within other segments. So in this film, underwater scenes are accompanied by music that relates only to that setting and that you don't hear that music again in other settings. And so for this reason, right. they had three different composers. Hmm. The composers were Henry Mancini, who's going to be your biggest name there. He has done, like, for me personally, I, I know him from the score for Charade, which is amazing. But um, <laughs> he also scored Touch of Evil, Breakfast at Tiffany's, The Pink Panther, Wait Until Dark. Like, he, he's your Hollywood heavy hitter. Right. So just little films. 
Yeah, ex exactly. So the famous creature theme music was composed uncredited by Universal staff composer Herman Stein. Stein, who also composed the music for Julie Adams Swimming, contributed some 12 minutes of the score, whilst colleagues like Henry Mancini and Hans J. Salter contributed 12 to 16 minutes respectively, and a further 9 minutes were provided by Universal Stock Music Library. So it's just kind of a weird case where it's like this patchwork of different mm -hmm. scores that somehow still work together because i mean you and I, neither you and i are music people right yeah i don't think it would really be easy for me to be like oh yeah something different clearly composed that piece of music or that doesn't sound like it belongs here but that is kind of the case of what happened here yeah i guess i'm just intrigued that they actually pay different composers to create different things like that's a very unusual phenomenon for contemporary films right normally we only hear one composer unless they get fired or they leave the movie <laughs> and then they bring in somebody else exactly exactly and so it's i don't know i don't know what the deal was there but that's what they did i mean that's something I'll, I'll punt back to listeners if you know of a reason why they would hire multiple different composers aside from just the obvious that they were like this person does good this type of music uh mm. let us know yeah so this film, uh, it has its world premiere February 12th, 1954, and it opens wide for the public on March 5th, 1954. So just about a month later. Got a runtime of 79 minutes. Of course, it is Universal Studios. I don't really... So Wikipedia has the box office at $1.3 million, but in the featurette I watched, they were like, oh, after only a few weeks, it had scored, it had grossed well over $2 million. So huh. I don't have official numbers here. I feel like I would trust the featurette over Wikipedia. I I 100% would too because this also for Box Office Mojo um the the uh, the haul for this movie is listed as two hundred and seventy five dollars. Oh, okay. <laughs> that seems like a reissue or something. I guess it's the international numbers. They didn't even have a domestic number for it. Yeah, Box Office reporting is a dicey art before a certain age. Mm-hmm. Critical reception's a bit lower than some of the classics and i just wonder if it's because it was coming in the middle like, i just wonder if some people just viewed it as kind of a less than from universal's quote-unquote heyday in the 30s and 40s we're looking at a 78 percent of rotten tomatoes with an average score of 7.1 out of 10 and a letterbox score of 7.2 out of 10 but still i mean th this movie has an enormous following uh it's actually made more money in merchandising than it did in box office receipts as well I could see that. Yeah, this film seems tailor-made to certain types of merchandising. Well, it's fascinating because this is a G-rated movie. This movie is, and I quote, appropriate for all audiences. Despite the fact that, I mean, people die in this movie. <laughs> yeah, but it's all happening off screen. Like, I think the worst thing that we see is uh, Edwin when he gets lit on fire by accident. Oh, you mean when he gets the um, the Eric Stoltz anaconda mm -hmm. death? I, like, I, I'm going to put you off screen for the rest of the movie? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Folks, you were going to hear it multiple times. I hope that the people who made Anaconda paid the people who made this movie a lot of money because Anaconda is a straight up remake of this film. It's so funny because you, you pointed this out to me and I was like, I've seen the movie before, but outside of the Amazon and like there's a creature in the Amazon, what really is there? Um, yeah, a lot. I mean, a lot. Like the Eric Stoltz thing was the most egregious. The shot from under K reminded me of a shot from under J-Lo. When they reach the lagoon, it's just like when they reach the waterfall area in Anaconda. <laughs> mm -hmm. Even like the troubles with the boat where they can't, yes! uh, you know, they can't escape from the lagoon once they're trapped there. You're just like, basically, we swapped out an aquatic man or a gill man for a giant snake. Yep, which just wants to go after J-Lo to kill her instead of, you know, mate mm -hmm. with her, question mark? 
Question mark? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So sorry, that was my long film history lesson, Joe. So bring in your education. Edumacate me, please. Okay, so... I'm going to give you a quick education about what was happening to the queers in the 1950s, because it is going to set up our discussion about this oh, film. Okay. And I'm going to be drawing very heavily on Harry M. Benshoff's Monsters in the Closet, which is, once again, it's a canonical text. If folks are interested <laughs> in queer horror, I really highly encourage you to seek it out. Just a shameless plug, I am going to be talking to Benshoff at Bright Gown, which is coming <gasps> up this weekend, and we're Yay. going to release that conversation as a bonus episode later on this year so you will get to hear a little bit about his perspectives that's a surprise for me i didn't know that was happening (laughs) (laughs) i'm full of secrets yay (laughs) so the period of the 50s falls into a chapter in his book called pods pederasts and perverts recriminalizing the monster queer in the cold war culture because it's important to remember that this film comes out briefly after the end of the second world war so there's a lot of things going on in american culture that inform this film as well as other horror films in the 50s mm-hmm. and it's basically a decade of conformity and containment so it's basically women had been working while the men were away and then the men come home and they want women to go back into the home and the women are like maybe not mm-hmm. so there's that issue and then of course there's also the fear of communism because we have squashed all of our villains in world war ii but we need a new battle to keep everybody occupied and this is where communism and mccarthyism comes in so at the same time we also have the rise of the homosexual trace (laughs) so in the 50s um, in the 50s yeah it took that long well because the idea was and again if you go back and listen to our episode on the old dark house we talked about how the there's a stereotypical depiction of queers in that film right so we've got effeminate men and we've got butch women and they're Mm. really easy to spot like they can't hide because they're so obviously queer whereas in the 50s this idea of like oh well you'll know a gay man when you spot him because he'll have a lisp and he'll be effeminate is maybe not true and all of a sudden people start to get really really paranoid but also we know that there's more of them because the kinsey report comes out in 1948 Uh... and that reports that 37 percent of adult men have had at least one post-adolescent homosexual encounter and 13 percent of women so all of a sudden it's like holy shit there's a lot of gays out there yeah Mm mm-hmm uh, Which I was like, that number seems shockingly high to me. <laughs> 13% for women seems very low to me. <laughs> it does, yeah. I'm not sure if that's just like men were more blasé about it and the women were like, uh, no, I've never done that, I swear. I mean, well, there's something to be said about the role women play in society in the 50s too, but that's probably for another yeah. podcast to handle. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll pump that over to somebody else. <laughs> so, so what happens here is that this perceived fear that all of a sudden there's so many more queers in everyday life, it starts to spark a media frenzy. So, mm-hmm. the media return to criminalizing homosexuality with a vengeance. So, they link it to things like murder, communism, pedophilia, anything totally foreign and anything minoritized otherness. Mm-hmm. So, this all feeds into McCarthyism because there's a paranoia about 
reds and and like oh we can't trust anybody there's soviet spies who are going to be making their way (laughs) onto u.s soil so anything that is politically or sexually different fuels this uh socially oppressive atmosphere that is pervading thankfully we do get some civil rights movements as like queers do make themselves known and they're kind of like uh we're not going to be silenced and we're not going to be treated this way (laughs) but it's a lot of bad for the most part because those are like fringe niche uh grassroots kind of campaigns So in 1950, to start the decade, we have the HUAC Committee, which is the House Un-American Activities Committee, and they're basically going after perceived spies who work in the government, but what they're actually also doing is they're getting rid of homosexuals. Of course they are. Of course they are. So basically, HUAC starts to go after any sex deviates in the government because they are considered security risks that have to be eradicated. And when you look at the history, there's actually more homosexuals who get fired from government jobs uh, compared to communists and other like people who were singled out and targeted. So mm-hmm. we, we really got it the worst. Yay, in HUAC. And I, I just want to point out here too. So I mean, like, and this is like not really a whole discussion we need to have, but it's like, I love, sorry, this is going to sound weird. I love hearing about this type of stuff. Not because it's mm-hmm. good. Obviously terrible. It's a part of our history. <laughs> it is. But, you know, there have been a lot of debates going on about uh, now or discussion among the queer community about, you know, how to be queer, especially from younger right. generations, you know. The, the, uh, Generation Z has so many more affordabilities to being queer now uh, than we did uh, as millennials or especially as baby boomers did, you know, if if they were queer. And there's so much of like, oh, well, you can't do this. You can't say this, blah, 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 blah. It's like, okay, but you're also forgetting that a lot of people have different life experiences. Like, I feel like that's something we all too often forget as people, queer or otherwise. Mm-hmm. But it's like, you know, I'm just imagining growing up in the 50s, however age you want to be, and having that worry on you of like, oh, what if this committee gets me? Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Like that's a, it's a life of fear and anxiety. Yeah, it's your entire livelihood. It could be your marriage. Um mm-hmm. it it's basically your entire life is at risk and all you need, I mean, it it kind of goes back to ideas around the crucible and the Salem witch trials where all you really need is somebody to point the finger at you and you could lose everything. But also, you're probably not living a very great life because you probably can't be very true to who you really are. Well, and okay, I saw um, just this past weekend, Jonathan Bennett, the, the guy from Mean Girls who plays the the love interest. Oh, right. Yeah. I, this is related, I promise. But he made a post where he was like, you know, I, I was closeted for my entire life. I grew up in a period where it was you, you were shamed for being gay. And mm-hmm. it's interesting having like the first like two thirds of my life be that. And then this last third where it's like, okay, being queer is cool now. You can do it. So it's yeah. weird to grow up feeling so much shame. And then all of a sudden like a switch is turned. It's like, oh no, you're fine now. You can be fine. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. It's difficult to have that experience. So when you have people that are like, you know, 13 years old say, oh no, blah, 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 blah. Do it like this. Well, it, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there's something to be said like the lived experience of younger generations is completely different. And I'm sure they have different kinds of problems that we never experienced. Like I'm so happy that I didn't grow up with social media because I can't imagine what my preteen and teen years life would have been in terms of bullying online. So like they have a different experience, but also it's important to recognize the previous generations and like the struggle and the strife that they went through. Like that's why I think queer history is so important. 
Oh, yes, absolutely. And of course, I'm generalizing here. It's not like every gay person who's in Gen Z has it easy, you know? Yeah, <laughs> that, know. that is not the case. Just like, like every person that is our age like, had, didn't always have it difficult. Like Some people did have it easy. It's just... Again, different life experiences, but I'm speaking sp- specifically from a general, like, generational pff, viewpoint. A I different guess. gener generation. Oh, yeah. I know. <laughs> Say that 10 <laughs> times fast. I will <sighs> not. <laughs> okay. So, as this is all going on, because of the gender relationship, and I'm using gender as like the old timey, there are two genders there's men and women, because that's what they thought back in the 50s. Of course. So, American masculinity is basically under attack because men don't know how to be men because they've come back from war and their wives and their daughters and their like cousins and neighbors have been working to fill the, the vacuum in production. And like women are now demanding equal rights or different kinds of rights. So American masculinity takes a hit in a certain way. So what they do is they end up doubling down in a lot of popular men's magazines. So we've got things like Esquire, which is reputable, but then we've got pulpy imitators. You're going to love these Uh like stag, sir, with an exclamation mark (laughs) saga and showdown for men. And (laughs) these magazines purport to tell you how to be, a masculine man like this is what an american man is like and so they do this via things like true adventure stories of intense homosocial bonding and also the ever-increasing objectification of women as sex as sex objects so think of like men's health meets fhm or maxim magazine okay But in the 50s. (laughs) But in the 50s, yeah. So it was obviously not as racy as nowadays, but it was very much like, read this magazine if you want to be a real man. Right. And within these magazines, we start to see advertisements for things like Charles Atlas type bodybuilding courses. And the funniest thing to me, and also Benshoff, because he makes a lot of jokes about it, is that there were a lot of queer readers for these magazines. Because it's like... It's magazines that feature these ads of men in skimpy items of clothing performing exercises. So it's like basically softcore pornography that you can order for gay men (laughs) about how to be a real man, Trace. So um, obviously those were popular. And then I'm going to give you a specific instance and then I'll bring it back to the film, I swear. Yeah. This all plays into, I think, the relationship between David and Mark in the film. For sure. So this is after the course of the film, but it's reflective of the times. So in a March 1958 issue of the men's magazine, Sir! Exclamation mark, There is an article, <laughs> and I'm sorry, folks, I'm going to drop the F slur or I, I reference to it. So the article is called, It's the Day of the Gray Flannel F slur. Mm-hmm. And the piece warns that not all homos are easy to spot. Many have muscles, are he-men in everything except sex. So this piece <laughs> says, I know, <laughs> I love it. This piece says an estimated 15 to 20% of men are homos, and only 4% are so effeminate they are recognizable. Like, you can see the paranoia and the like, oh my god, they could be anyone. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Here, 15-20% to 20% is not a small number. <laughs> no, it's no. Like, oh my god. Like, one in five. <laughs> like, this is like, okay, yeah, let's weed out 15-20% to 20% of the population. Oh my god. Yes. And then send them to an island where they can't procreate. <laughs> I mean, honestly. <laughs> We'd probably do it. <laughs> right. So the article continues, they design dresses, decorate homes, sell antiques, make the rounds of Broadway producers' offices, 
But what throws unsuspecting women is that they also can be found heading Wall Street firms, boxing in Madison Square Garden, and playing baseball. There's no telling where a gray flannel he-man Efsler will turn up. It's like... (laughs) Okay, girl, settle down. <laughs> yeah, don't tell this person about bathhouses. Right? Yeah. So basically what we're seeing is this idea that to be masculine, you have to be hyper-masculine, but also feeding the frenzied paranoia that any man you know could be gay because he could be dressed in plain sight and doing regular man activities. So it's like, how will we ever know? Which is why it truly was our day. It's so laughable, though. Like, you read something like that, and you're like, there's no way that was actually real. And people, like, wrote that and read that and believed that. But it it did. It was. They did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we get to something like The Creature from the Black Lagoon, which comes out in and around the middle of this decade. And it's basically about male scientists posturing for position, unable to show actual affection for each other. So they feed into competitive spirit. But you know, then we have all this coded symbolism. So the creature from the Black Lagoon has a penis head and Mark literally just walks around like with harpoons at waist level. And the men are constantly in a state of undress. And you're just like, this movie's got a lot of gay shit in it. I like reading Mark as a repressed homosexual because it makes his general assholery an easier pill to swallow. Mm -hmm. Because if not, he's just a narcissist, like, wannabe fame whore. Yeah, no, I found an article, um, and this is by Eric Langberg, but it's Forget the Babadook. The creature from the Black Lagoon is the true gay icon. And he (laughs) writes... Mark, in particular, seems to resent Kay's presence on the expedition, voicing his displeasure at having a woman along several times. And, of course, watching the movie, I was like, of course, that's just, like, men of the 50s. Like, women shouldn't be doing work. They belong in the kitchen. Exactly. But Uh, (laughs) but it's also the other thing, too. Exactly. So Langberg goes on. He goes, in other words, he clearly wishes there were just men on the boat. At one point, he scoffs at David for paying too much attention to Kay, sniping, come on, you can play house later. He has a tendency to interrupt their intimate moments by waving phallic weaponry around at crotch level. There's your um, harpoons. And Mm -hmm. whenever David strips down to his swimsuit to go swimming or diving in the lagoon, Mark insists on going with him. (laughs) Yep. Oh, yeah. Like it. And... And again, that feeds into this idea that, like, real men have these homosocial bonds, so they are going to hang out with other men, and that's perfectly fine. But then you flip it around and you think, how come Mark, who has expressed apparently interest in Kay, doesn't want to stay in the boat and be with her? It could be because he's competitive with David, but it could also be that he wants alone time in the rowboat. Well, you know what, y'all? When, whenever <laughs> we always drop an article on the, for these episodes on Bloody Disgusting, uh, the Monday following the episode's release. So when on Monday, <laughs> mm. go go check the comments and see how many people tell us we're reaching for this queer reading of Mark and David. <laughs> oh my god! The funny thing is, is that it's so obvious to me, and it's also a trajectory that we have seen a thousand times since. Like, go back and revisit our discussion on the Forsaken. Go back and revisit our discussion of the Care Smith character in Final Destination. Like. This is a, it's subtext, sure, but this character who is like an asshole because he is secretly in love with another male character and hides it through violence, through sarcasm, through generally dickish behavior, 
it has carried through to contemporary queer cinema. And I just always think it's funny that people are like, oh, well, you're reaching. And I'm like, well, shall I give you the 60 fucking year history of this character? We've seen him before. Because we're also going to read the Gilman as queer, too, because, you know, he's like the queer thing that's interrupting the the heteronormative sure. lifestyle of David and Kay. Mm-hmm. But also the way that, that Mark interacts with the Gill Man. So it's very much like, okay, let's let's view him as a repressed homosexual. He hates the Gill Man because he represents everything that he cannot be right now, which is an out and proud queer man, which is Absolutely. why he's just an asshole to it the whole time. Because, yeah, the Gill Man is living its life as freely and proudly as it can, just trying to live in its natural habitat. And Mark mm-hmm. is here saying, no, I can't do that, so you can't either. I'm going to mess this up for you. Yeah, or even like less subtext and more like full text he's basically trying not to think about his sexual attraction to david so he prioritizes like okay fine if i can't have this man i'm gonna go stick my sharp pointy object into that thing yeah (laughs) he's just redirecting his urges into violence by killing the creature instead that kills it by spewing white goo at it oh man that that scene had me giggling on the couch. It, it's really <laughs> funny. It is very funny. And I, yeah, I mean. I mean, I get it. You need a you need a color that's going to be very obvious in an underwater black and white movie. But at the same time, like, you just shot jizz at that creature. Oh, yeah. That, that is exactly, exactly what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, jizz harpoons. Let's get into this, shall we? <laughs> let's, let, let's do it. All right. So... Uh, we begin with the creation story, <laughs> and then we move into an archaeological <laughs> dig in the Amazon jungle. I, I'm sorry, I, I do want to. I, I I spent the time to to transcribe this. Oh please! So we set up this film. In the beginning, God created the heaven <laughs> and the earth. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. It's just like in the beginning, like oh, it's a Bible story. Got it. It 100 percent is. It's so funny. Sorry. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. This is the planet Earth, newly born, as we see a globe, and cooling from a temperature of 6,000 degrees to a few hundred in less than five billion years. The heat rises meets the atmosphere, the clouds form, and rain pours down on the hardened surface for countless centuries. The restless seas rise, find boundaries, are contained. Now in their warm depths, the miracle of life begins. In infinite variety, living things appear and change and reach the land, leaving a record of their coming, of their struggle to survive, to their eventual end. Their record of life is written on the land where 15 million years later, in the upper reaches of the Amazon, man is still trying to read it begin film yeah oh my god (laughs) i mean it it's a lot and i do think it's a little ridiculous part of me wonders if this is them trying to stretch it across 70 minutes so that they've got enough of a runtime maybe i mean this this is longer for one of those universal movies but i chalk it up to being you know 20 years later Mm -hmm. but yeah this is a 79 minute film that literally like it goes because because again with these films the credits are in the opening so the last frame is like the end with like maybe one extra scene of credit so these movies like use their entire runtime. (laughs) yeah it's true i mean hearing it it sounds a little bit ridiculous and very purple prosy but it is also setting up this idea of mother nature and evolution and that does become important to the scientific expedition that these characters are going on Mm -hmm. i mean you could argue that the film ultimately doesn't need it because it's really just about like these three characters trying to survive an attack by a gill man but yeah 
I, I don't know. I, I admire the fact that they put in the effort to say this is a sweeping story about how this creature came to be and why we shouldn't have interrupted its life cycle. I mean, the is, the, is there ever a moment in this film where you're not on the creature's side? Uh, it, uh, it's interesting because I definitely saw a lot of people say the creature is super empathetic. I'm on its side the whole time. And part of me thinks... I think it's the way that the film has to frame it because the creature doesn't talk. So we don't get any insight. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that I'm on its side so much as I think it's a thing of mystery and wonder, like especially in the moments where we just see it swimming, we have to project thoughts and ideas onto it. And I'm really interested in that. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think, um, well, when we get to the scene, I'm going to talk, because I, I do have, yeah, sorry. Continue. Let's go. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so we are introduced to Dr. Carl Maya, and he is played by Antonio Moreno. And I should just make a quick note via Benchoff that the production originally wanted this character to be played by Ramon Navera. I don't know why he wasn't able to accept the job, but uh, he was a homosexual actor, so this movie would have been even more queer had he oh. been Also, Spanish lesson for you. In Spanish, you pronounce Shit. every single... No, it's, you're fine. It's every vowel. So instead of Maya, it's Maia. Maia. Okay, I will try to remember that. So Dr. <laughs> Maia discovers a fossilized flipper in the rock and he takes it away. He's very excited. So he's like, cool, you folks hold down the fort. I'm going to run off to my colleagues and we're going to take a look at this. You body bags. <laughs> look over this fish thing. <laughs> yeah, these are original red shirts, only they're not wearing shirts. Mm -hmm. They're just wearing not white skin. Exactly. Yes, I did notice that it's all the poor people and the people of color that bite it first in this movie. And and the, and the ostensible human villain, if you want to call him that. Mm-hmm. Also that we can get our happy heterosexual love affair. I was going to say, your queer character is the yeah. one that gets killed. <laughs> yeah. And if you want to read The Creature is Dying, if you didn't know that there was a sequel, you could say all barriers have been removed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Dr. Maia meets with Kay Lawrence, played by Julie Adams, as well as Dr. David Reed... Richard Carlson, and they are dating but not married after six months. Oh, I wrote down six months in my notes, and I was like, damn, dude, like, she's ready to go. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then I was like, is six months a long time? I mean, maybe, I was engaged maybe it was... for a year, but back in the 50s? Well, no, I, my husband and I dated for six years before we even got engaged. So, yeah, I'm just mm -hmm. kind of like... It was a different time. I mean, she had probably shown him some ankle. They had probably gone for a few <laughs> walks by this point. Like... <laughs> The deal was settled. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> That's my Victorian joke. Okay. Oh, I get it. <laughs> Show some neck. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> so David is excited about the idea of evolutionary prospects because uh, this is his field. So his impassioned discussion about this therefore encourages Dr. Mark Williams, played by Richard Denning, to procure the funds. So they say, cool, let's mount this expedition. So we've got David, Mark, Dr. Maia, and another colleague, Dr. Edwin Thompson, who is played by Whit Bissett in the Eric... Uh, Eric Stoltz role. <laughs> In the Eric Stoltz role, a.k.a. the character who is there but doesn't do anything. I have to say, though, so, like, there's a whole part in this where they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to have the expedition in Manaus. And I, I, again, I was cute to Anaconda here, and I was like, oh, yeah, they say Manaus, Anaconda, but mm -hmm. it's literally, like, a major city in Brazil. So it would be like if I was right. like, 
Like, oh my god, they said Paris in this movie, and they say Paris in this <laughs> other movie, too. <laughs> They're uh, the same. <laughs> it's like, you just get so excited, and then you realize, oh, that's just geography. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, if you're going to the Amazon, like, you're going to be near Manaus, probably. But also, now I'm like, okay, can we get either Anaconda or a Gilman movie set in Paris? Because what would that look like? Not the same. Not the <laughs> same. Be, not so I much. Know you, need, you need the rainforest set. I'm sorry, it's kind of a rainforest here. It's like one area of universal backlot. But mm-hmm. <laughs> still. <laughs> it is a pond with trees on the perimeter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Yeah, so we've got David, Mark, Dr. Maya, and Edward as well as Captain Lucas, who pilots the boat, the Rita. He is played by Nestor Pava, maybe? Paiva. 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 Oh, okay. So again, well, I, wasn't every... sure, I wasn't sure no. if it was a character name or a... <laughs> uh... That's okay. The, the benefit is, again, all vowels have the same sound. So, a, e, e, o, u. So, pa, you normally say Paiva or Paiva. Mm-hmm. It's Paiva. 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 Okay. Have I mentioned lately that I hate doing this podcast? It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's only because I just, again, I took so much Spanish class, so I at least know how to pronounce things. But yeah, it's it, it, Spanish isn't what y'all do up there. This is true. Yeah. Talk to me again when you need to pronounce French. Oh, yeah. I can't do that. I cannot. Do, I don't understand that at all. <laughs> uh, together, we are a team. There we go. So on to this sausage fest, which I love that the boat is also called the Rita because it's like, uh, we're doing a little bit of like... I mean, obviously, you name boats after women. That's a thing that we do. But I just love that it's like, all men onto the boat. The boat is named after a woman. But we don't <laughs> like women. Don't bring them. Okay, you're here too? Okay, I guess you can come. There's literally, like, I think it's one of Mark's eyes, like, this. she's a woman. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> like, okay, Mark. <laughs> like, also, Mark, you fucking work with her. Like, we yeah. saw you all working at the same institute. It's not even like, oh, she's just David's girlfriend. Like, she's a fucking doctor, too. Yeah, she she's an ichthyologist. I had to look that up. Yeah, I heard them say it, and I was like, I'm not saying that in my plot recut, because I can't say it. They study fish. That is li- it, that's all it is. Yes, okay. So meanwhile, back at the camp, we've got Dr. Maia's two assistants being brutally murdered by the creature. So, okay, I'll bring in more Benshoff for you. So, Benshoff writes on this scene. When a male monster approaches a male victim and the film cuts away from the scene, the audience is left to speculate upon the precise nature of the attack. Is it sexual or violent or both? For a spectator predisposed towards a queer reading protocol, these narrative ellipses open up a range of possible meanings. Mm-hmm. So, but that was an interesting way of looking at it, though, because I, did, I didn't at all look at this attack scene as anything but the creatures coming in to kill them. Mm-hmm. But it obviously could just be, oh, the creature's curious. It doesn't actually retaliate until they attack it. So right. that's something that I actually thought was really fascinating. But yeah, I also love, yeah, maybe the fishman just wants to fuck them. I don't know. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. We don't see. We can only speculate. Mm-hmm. So when the Rita actually ends up docking, they obviously discover that these men are dead. I do love that Lucas, the captain, blames a jaguar because I immediately then went to the jaguar and anaconda. <laughs> okay, no, I thought the same thing, but it's a panther anaconda. And so, oh, damn it. No, I know. I literally wrote my notes, Jaguar, just like Anaconda. And then I was like, oh, fuck, it's a goddamn panther. <laughs> we're trying so hard. Oh, my God, we're forcing this reading. We are. <laughs> <laughs> so while this is happening, Kay is actually almost being attacked by the boat. So we see the, the creature's hand come out of the water, and it nearly grabs her ankle. Bum, bum, ankle. bum. Bum, bum, 
I do love that our glimpse of the creature in the early parts of the film is very much a, we're not going to show you the creature yet, because... You know, that's what we're used to in creature features. You know, you see an arm, you see a talon, you see like an eyeball, and we're not going to show you what the full thing looks like because we can't afford the CGI. You're like, oh, Universal Movies did it first. Yeah, they were actually going to show the creature even less in the final cut of the film. They, they, they didn't want to like show it in full until about the 50 minute mark. The oh, reason wow. that they ended up showing it more is because the suit was so expensive. Right. <laughs> that they were yeah, like, well, we paid for it. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That totally makes sense. And honestly, like this, the suit looks so good. Why yeah. wouldn't you show it off? I mean, again, I don't envy whatever this actress had to go, whatever, what I said the actress had to go through to be in this suit, but it, it, mm-hmm. the work paid off. Yes, absolutely. Uh, okay, so we get a montage as the team gets to work. They're, you know, sorting rocks and doing other fun science stuff, whatever. And... Mark gets really disappointed because they don't find any more artifacts or fossilized appendages. And he's like, oh, well, I guess this hasn't been successful. To which I said, uh, haven't you been there for a half day? What were you expecting to find? Apparently it's been like six days. And okay. I mean, the, the film doesn't doesn't like really like guide you in the transition. But there is like a throwaway line where it's like six days and nothing or whatever. But okay, okay but, but this is when we get kind of the tributary line, right? Where it's like, well, do, doesn't this tributary like where's the dead end? I'm like, why didn't y'all think about that before? Like, <laughs> but but then here's the thing. So it takes you to Black Lagoon, and <laughs> I wrote in my notes either David or Mark goes going into unexplored territory with a woman. Dot 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 dot. <laughs> Kay is unfazed by this, but Maya goes, the natives call it a black lagoon, a paradise. Only no one has come back to prove it. <laughs> and I'm like, that's a joke? Like, <laughs> Lucas is a weird character. He, he not only doesn't understand any of the work that they're actually doing, because at one point he says, I think he actually asks either David or Maya, why do you gather rocks? And they're like, because rocks tell us stories. And he's kind of like, no, I don't get it. So like, <laughs> I kind of think that he's meant to be a simpleton who just manages a boat. But you're like, all right. I've seen some readings describe Lucas as the Quint of the movie from Jaws. I don't really get that. If only oh. because he's not. Like, if anything, for me, Mark is more the Quint in this film than, than Lucas yeah. is. Yeah, I think that's a better read for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they get back on board and they decide, yeah, we're going to go to this Black Lagoon because that seems like the more obvious place where these creatures might have come from. So as they're going, this is where Kay and David discuss their relationship and then Mark literally interrupts by shooting a harpoon right next to David's head. It's his penis. It's his penis. Yeah, and... uh, (laughs) This is where Benchoff says that this kind of encapsulates the nature of what Kay is doing to the relationship and what Mark is struggling with. So he says, this brief sequence pulls all of this together by linking the erotic tension of the homosocial triangle to that of the monsters lurking in the jungle. So David and Kay are on deck. They're about to kiss. Their embrace is interrupted by the cries of a wild animal. They attempt to kiss again. And this is when they're interrupted by Mark brandishing and firing his spear gun. So it's like, that's where we see Mark is the equivalent of these creatures. And they're both trying to come in between the heterosexual relationship. Right, exactly. And we'll get more of that with the creature towards the end. Yeah. So they get to the lagoon, and it's beautiful, it's picturesque. Mark and David decide to scuba to the bottom, they're going to collect these rock samples, and then this is where the creature nearly grabs one of them. 
Yes, I was going to say this. I think this is a really good jump scare for the 50s. Yeah, I mean, this movie isn't particularly scary because I think of the pacing and the way it's shot and the fact that it relies very heavily on its score, but it's still like effective at these ooh the creatures almost gonna get them i mean and I, I if 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 we have any listeners who would have seen this when they were a kid or like in in theaters or like they grew up in the 50s i'm actually curious because again like, we talk about this all the time about how scares have evolved over the years right did people actually find this scary in the 50s and i, I i'm not asking that to be like well that's silly if they did i'm just curious i'm just really mm-hmm. curious if this was considered like scary in the 50s Right. Yeah, because part of me wonders, you know, or was this something where it's thrilling and you're you're really excited to see this creature depicted on screen and you're going for the 3D underwater effects a la James Cameron or something like that? It might have been that. It, it very or it could have been both. Who knows? Yeah. Why not both? <laughs> <laughs> so I do like that the creature or the gill man doesn't really seem to pay too, too much attention to them, but it definitely takes note when David grabs an underwater fern or some kind of foliage uh, mm-hmm. and it he rips it out and it, that's when the creature really starts to pay more attention to them and i can't again help but think of that environmental message like this is my home you come in here you're ripping shit out of the ground now i'm gonna have to fuck with you it's kind of like when john Boyd's gonna blow up the bridge in anaconda and jimmy <laughs> is like i'm talking about upsetting the ecological balance of this river <laughs> exactly exactly well, we also get a moment later in the film where Kay is smoking a cigarette on the uh, on the deck she of the boat. She just dumps that fucking butt in the water, and I thought, bitch, no. Mm-mm. Yeah, she dumps the cigarette in the water, but here's the thing. So it, it cuts down, though, to the creature looking up at her. And you can see it as, okay, the creature's looking at her, but you can also see it as, you're fucking up my lagoon with your trash cigarette. And exactly. And that's why he's retaliating against them. <laughs> For sure. So this is when we get the playhouse later comment. And of course, yes, he's scorning not only the possible heterosexual couple, but also the feminizing and domesticating threat that is interfering with his all-male world. Yeah, we also, I mean, again, if we're going into this queer reading, we also have a line where Kay, because David gets really pissy with Mark, and he's like, oh, I said a fucking asshole, blah, blah, blah. And Kay's <laughs> like, well, don't worry. Don't worry about it. You know, he, he, gets, he makes money, blah, blah, blah. And I've tried to change him. It doesn't work. Oh, you've tried to change him, Kay? Mm-hmm. Have you? Mm. Oh, have you tried to change him? Did you order him a Charles Atlas bodybuilding advertisement to make him? What were the name of those masculine? magazines? <laughs> <laughs> Sir! Sir! Exclamation mark. Oh my god. If somebody has copies of Sir magazine, please send them to oh, me. Oh, <laughs> I want to frame that shit. <laughs> okay, so this is where Kay says, oh, the water looks great. Uh, I'm going to hop in for a little bit of a swim. And this has to be the most iconic part of the film, right? As she's swimming on the top and the creature is mimicking her below the water. It is. And not only because, A, it's gorgeous. And also it's funny because whenever we're seeing her face above the water, it's uh, Julie Adams. And whenever it's underwater, it's her stunt double. Mm -hmm. But... It's so gorgeously filmed, and I'm sure you picked up on this, but this is basically a sex scene. I didn't, actually. I thought that it was like, I, I think I saw somebody refer to it as diva worship, like the creature is so enraptured by the way that she moves her body, it tries to mirror it. But yes to the sex scene, absolutely so, see it. Well, no, let's look at both of these things. Because no, you're right, and I, you're getting this also from Mr. Langberg and his Forget the Babadook article. So, and... Honestly, I love people having their insights into queer culture and why we worship divas and things like that, because I think that's just fascinating. But what Langberg writes is, 
Queer people have long been demonized by Anita Bryant types as horrific aberrations, a dark force working to corrupt the polished sanctity of the heterosexual family. Is it any surprise then that we find ourselves somehow at home in fractured minds and disquieted basements among the wreckers and the rot? That feeling of exclusion as it festers can lead to a certain glee taken in what I think of as queer cultural terrorism, which I love. Hmm. The aggressive hijacking or co-option of straight culture in a manner meant to tweak or antagonize. Queers have a way of effervescing around the objects and figures we claim as our icons, often to an excessive degree. I will not dispute that. Cults of diva worship are founded on this, and the skill with which we can recite chapter and verse from our camp-captured movies arises from it as well. See also any member of pop music stardom, be it the Britney Army, the Kesha Animals, the Gaga Monsters, like all that shit. Right. So... In this particular tale, we, you know, Benchoff has to say, you know, the monstrous figure represents a threat to heterosexual order, querying the relationship, whatever. Okay, so we have this with both Mark and the and the Gill Man. For much of the movie, the Gill Man is beneath the surface of the water, lurking in the murky depths of the lagoon. As Benchoff notes, the movie was promoted by describing the creature as raging with pent-up passions. <laughs> oh my god. In other words, any moment this phallic-shaped creature is threatening to rise to the surface and erupt in a release of pent-up passions that breaks apart the heterosexual couple. So with the swimming scene, yes, if you want to read it as diva worship, so yeah, Gilman, this is again Langberg, Gilman just wants to look at Julie Adams all day without those pesky men interrupting him rather than anything untoward <laughs> like sexual assault. Similarly, when he kidnaps her near the end of the film, he doesn't maul or rape her. He places her on a pedestal in the center of his grotto where he can admire her without being hunted for it, which I love that. I think that is a that wonderful reading. Yeah. But no, but the, the scene in general, I mean, from a filmmaking standpoint, it is gorgeous. It is beautiful. It's perfectly shot. And it's just like, it's more pretty to me than it is haunting. But yeah. it's also like, I don't know, do you have this kind of like fear of the ocean? Because you don't ever really know. I mean, this isn't the ocean, it's the river. But like, you don't know what's below you. And I'm also just thinking like her swimming in this Amazon river mm -hmm. that could be full of a lot of other creatures, especially leeches. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, she's a brave lady. So there's a one scene where she's just kind of bobbing in the water treading. And mm -hmm. we see the creature reach for her ankle and nearly touch her. And she thinks that she feels something, but she's not quite sure. And this is the moment that I was referring to in our Friday part seven discussion with Greg Mucci, because Jason does this to the girl in the lake. Oh, you're right. You're totally right. Well, and what what got me about, well, so, hey, homage is everywhere. But what got me about this scene too is that, so when she feels that, she just dives underwater. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? I'm going to investigate. She's a regular Nancy Drew. I like Kay as a female lead. It just sucks that she has, I mean, again, this is studio mandated. Of course, this is just, this is the formula for these movies. But that she is stuck just being that damsel in distress for the man oh, to, to man. rescue at the end. Oh, for sure. Like, every time they do something, I keep thinking, you positioned this woman as a doctor, and you're basically stranding her on this boat to scream every time she sees the creature. That's it. And she's a smart woman, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> she's a doctor. Yeah, I don't get it. But yes, it's, it's very much a product of its time in that regard. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so she ends up climbing aboard. They notice that something has been caught in the net, and then when they pull it up, it's been clawed to shit. And they're like, oh, shit. Okay, something is here. Now we're worried. Oh, because they find a claw in it. Yes. Like, All right. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> shit just got real. 
And again, putting the net into the water, pulling it out, and it's been, like, ripped apart. Anaconda! <clears throat> oh my god, yeah. <laughs> Everyone, we are aware that Anaconda came, like, 40 years after this movie, by the way. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. We're saying Anaconda has studied this film very closely. Yes. <laughs> this movie is just like Anaconda. <laughs> oh my god, can you believe that Creature from the Black Lagoon totally stole from Anaconda? <laughs> So David accuses Mark of acting like a big game hunter because Mark basically just wants to capture this thing. He's He's got fame, horror eyes all over this. He wants to capture it. He wants to bring it back. It's a little bit King Kong in that regard. Very heavy King Kong influences on this. Again, with, with K in general. I also want to point out for um, obviously academic reasons that Richard Carlson's ass in these swim shorts that he wears is uh-huh, very, uh-huh. very pretty. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Frankie Avalon kind of short. They're not quite short <laughs> shorts. They're like somewhere between yeah. a trunk and I love this era for the swimsuits. Well, because they're, they're tight fitting, but they're not like speedo tight fitting, right? Like they're yeah. just tight enough. They squeeze the ass, but don't show a bulge. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, that's what I like. Yeah. This is my scientific reasoning and like <laughs> evaluation of this swimsuit. I love that we've been pulling in like a deep, in, you know, really critical, investigative, uh, like just good meaty thought pieces. And then we're also like, but I like their shorts because it shows off an appropriate amount of ass and bulge. It's important. It's the important thing. It's important to know. Yeah. We're, we're balanced. Okay. So it's important to note that Mark, when he goes into the water, he's like, I got my harpoon. I've got my big dick phallic weapon. And David's like, I've got a camera. Okay, so I'm going to take some pictures. (laughs) The two genders, camera and harpoon. There you go. So they go into the water. Mark ends up getting a shot off of it. So he ends up shooting the creature and it dives off into the abyss and back on board this is where we develop the pictures and mark is like oh my god dollar signs this is a scientific find we're going to be super famous and rich which i mean you know he i'm sorry he is your uh paul serone from anaconda mm-hmm. fuck <laughs> quint it's paul serone mm-hmm. yeah so as they're developing these pictures which p.s do not turn out well so they can't even really use them this is where chico played by henry escalante is dragged off so this is our our next person to our next like, person every time of color. they turn their back somebody just gets murdered and it's like maybe keep an eye out for one another <laughs> oh okay you're gonna say i'm reaching again though but um the the the, the, the photo mishap totally mm-hmm. used in jaws too okay because uh, they, they, oh wait, I have seen Jaws too. <laughs> you totally have, but it's okay. No, there's a whole bit where they find the camera from the people that died in the opening of the movie, and then it's a close up of the shark's eye, and Brody's right. like, "That's a shark," and the board, the to- the board of whatever the town is like, mm-hmm. "I don't see anything. That just looks like water to me." <laughs> right. Yeah, folks, if you want to hear us talk about Jaws two in not too too much more detail, we do have an aquatic horror minisode on the Patreon. Mm-hmm. Lots of fun. But yeah, so Chico, another person of color, is dead. Yes, indeed. Yeah, don't worry, folks. We got one more. I'm sure he'll fare well. <laughs> nope, he doesn't. Spoiler alert. So Mark and David decide that they're going to dispense rotenon, which is a paralytic drug, into the water. So they're going to try to more or less put the creature to sleep so that they can put it into an underwater cage and then take it back. And This is your semen juice. Yes. <laughs> well, these are these are like... They kind of reminded me of urinal cups. Yes. Uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, that's nasty. Like, if I was the creature, <laughs> I would be really mad at everything that they're doing. Because there's even a shot later where you see all of these fish just floating on the surface. And they're like, mm, it didn't work. It looked like it stayed in the shallow end. <laughs> so it didn't go deep enough. And you're just like, did you kill all those fish? <laughs> Also, going back to our eco-horror argument, so the, the shot of the fish, like, at the top is pretty much right after Kay throws that cigarette in the water. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Even though, obviously, we know it's the road gnome, but, you know, we, we get you. Yeah. Uh, so, we get a little bit of time where Mark and David talk about aquatic life and evolution and this kind of stuff, and it's very much, like... Mark is displacing his feelings by talking about how much he wants to kill this creature. And it's like, you're in this boat, man. It's twilight. Maybe just say, hey, David, do you want to get a coffee when all this is done? (laughs) I would love to see what's on the inside of your shorts. You don't have to, (sighs) you know, project things onto this creature. You don't have to kill, man. Come on. This poor Gil, man. He's just trying to live his life. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, that night, Kay spots the Gilman striking a lantern off the side of the boat. I like this shot a lot. I thought that this was a fun little sequence because it's kind of like, hey, lights out and it smacks it and then it hops back in the water. <laughs> yeah, there's actually um, a, a minor like I don't even want to call it a blooper, but basically uh, the actor is uh, standing on a platform outside the boat. And okay. when it cuts to him, when he like when he smashes the lamp and scares himself, you can see him for a split second. Like he's supposed to just fall back in the water, but he mm-hmm. clearly like steps back onto the platform and then jumps off of it into the water. Oh uh, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I do remember that. So because it's now into this water, they're actually worried that it might drown, which I think is ridiculous because it's a fucking gillman. But they <laughs> fear for this thing because they see it pass out after it kind of like pops at does a little shimmy, waves hello, and then passes out. So once again, David and Mark, they jump in the water. They discover this cavern or grotto where the creature presumably lives. And But it's like, you, you have to like swim under the water into this mm-hmm. underwater cave that then comes up into an area that it's has a bunch of dry. oxygen in it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just go is that what a grotto it. is? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> that is not what i thought a grotto was but i'm gonna trust that somebody else is smarter than me on there a grotto is a small picturesque cave especially an artificial one in a park or garden oh okay so the the universal lot grotto is what we're saying yes that that is exactly what this is So they're wandering around here. There's there's a kind of fun jump scare where Mark just randomly reaches out and grabs David. And I'm just like, dude, we're in a mysterious cave hunting a creature and you're grabbing me out of the blue. Fuck right mm-hmm. off of that. <laughs> so, sorry, I was trying to grab your penis. Right. No. Was that your chest? I thought I was lower. Sorry. <laughs> My bad. Is that your harpoon near your shorts? You're just happy to see me. Right. Yeah. Shoot me with it. Fill me with that rotenone. Yeah. <laughs> a rotenone oh. dumpster god oh my god <laughs> i'm just trying jokes at this point <laughs> i mean they're, they're probably all landing for certain people it doesn't have the same uh the same zing as cum dumpster uh no few things do though if we're being honest <laughs> i i do love that they're doing this exploration and they're thinking okay we're making headway and meanwhile the guildman has circled back and he's killing z played by burning gozier <laughs> Yeah, I was like, oh, there's there's another one, no, another yeah. assistant, <laughs> dead mm-hmm. to the Gilman. <laughs> and really, like, the reason we haven't introduced these characters before is because they are not characters. They are just bodies no. to be knocked off. 
But then, like, Mark just starts beating it with a tree branch. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, he fully wants to kill it. Like, okay, Mark, we get it. You have aggression problems. So David stops Mark from doing this, and this is where they dump it into the underwater cage, and then they continue to bicker about whether they're going to be research scientists or whether they're going to go for the glory, and you're like, boys, just work out your problems in the bedroom like regular people. Yeah, their relationship really is the centerpiece of this movie, because... Th- uh-huh. Despite the fact that the romance between David and Kate is, like, a major component here, the film doesn't seem as interested in it as much as it is in the David and Mark relationship, which is hilarious to me. It really is. And folks, I'm not going to lie, Trace and I had an extended conversation before we started recording where we said, this is kind of text. It's not even really subtext because... There's a reading of this film. Like, sure, you can talk about, you know, the heterosexual couple and all this kind of jazz. It's so but boring. It, it's not a big factor in this movie. I feel like we get that those couple of conversations between Kay and David. But really, the majority of the time, it is David and Mark on this rowboat, bickering, getting physical with each other. Like, it is a lot of these men. And the woman is just kind of off on the boat in the distance. Mm-hmm. So this is when Kay and Edwin have a chat. He's on night watch duty. She can't sleep. So they're talking. There's these great shots of the Gill men listening and like slowly trying to break out of the cage, which I fucking loved. I agree. I also actually really liked the conversation between Kay and Edwin because it's all about her Mm -hmm. love life, which is, you know, but it was like an honest kind of like, not like salacious account of their relationship, but it was like, it was insight outside of just, oh, I'm the woman and I'm the lead man. Like, this is why we're Mm -hmm. together. Yes. Yeah. No, I liked it too. And it made me wish that the movie had given Edwin something more to do because he's actually only really a step above the people of color red shirts because Mm -hmm. we basically know jack shit about this guy i didn't know who he was <laughs> i know so you're like oh wait there's another scientist right okay when, let me go back when, when they were talking notes. i was like did he just come in on a plane or something like has he been here the whole time <laughs> so we parachuted in when he heard they had made a discovery <laughs> so he's basically here so that he can get attacked at this point he nearly dies and is only safe because k throws a lantern at the creature and lights him on fire and again it looks great yeah, it looks really good. Really good. So the creature jumps into the lagoon, which means, oh, shit, the creature is now free again. And Edwin is really badly injured. So he is fully stultified. He's wrapped up in bandage and he gets to spend the rest of the film lying on a bunk bed. Mute. Totally mute because the bandages prevent him from speaking. <laughs> I took it as the creature was strangling him. So maybe it had damaged some of them vocal cords. Oh, you mean like how they had to do a tracheotomy on Eric Stoltz and Anaconda, preventing him from speaking? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's just say that no. neither of these men are going to be doing karaoke anytime soon. No, but but this will lead to one of my eventual, like, funniest scenes in the movie with this poor man wrapped up in bandages. Oh, I do like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So because Edwin is now badly injured and the creature is on the loose, they have to decide whether they're going to try to stay and apprehend it again or if they should just get the fuck out of there, which is yeah, I wrote, David's Yeah, I wrote position. my notes right here. Lots of dick measuring contests going on right now between Mark and David. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then Captain Lucas pulls out, oop, another phallic object, a knife on Mark before he agrees with David. Oh, the litany of phallic objects. It's like, there are just dicks everywhere in this movie. This movie, <laughs> this is this is a movie of dicks, is what I'm saying. A movie, that's the subtitle for the episode, a movie of dicks. <laughs> Put that on the poster in 1954. <laughs> and then have the 
HUAC committee come down hard on you. Yeah. Yes. So they decide they're going to leave. David always wins all of these arguments. That's the other thing I love. Mark, nobody respects you. Nobody listens yeah, to you. Yeah, he, he never wins a single thing. So, again, no. but he's the bad guy, right? Like, he is. Well, I'm sorry. Kind of. Like, kind the Gill Man is our villain. But, like, this is very much a case of, like, man is the real monster. Indeed. Oh, yes, yes. Roland Emmerich took many, many cues from this movie. Wait, for which movie? If, uh, all of his movies? I mean, most of them. They almost always have a human being who's like, I'm going to fuck everybody over because I'm greedy or I'm part of oh, the military yeah, yeah. industrial complex. And... Yeah, you're right. I thought you meant just the overall like like message of like eco horror. So I was like, that, that's the day after tomorrow. That's not Roland yeah. Emmerich. Or, actually, is it Roland Emmerich? That's I think I'm it thinking. is, isn't it? Uh, okay, well, isn't it I'm him sure. and then 2012 or whatever? He did do 2012. Oh my god, it is Roland Emmerich. Oh my god, that movie's so yes, boring. Yes, I hate it. <laughs> the fakest looking fuck wolves. Yep. Oh, that movie is boring. Like, say what you want about Roland Emmerich movies. They may be bad, but they're not boring. That movie is boring. Uh, hmm. Yeah, okay, <laughs> You'll go look up the filmography. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's got my boy Jake. Anyway, okay, so they decide they're going to leave. Alas, they immediately run the boat into a, a kind of trap. Like, we're meant to believe that this was not here because they couldn't have gotten into the lagoon. But also part mm-hmm. of me is like, why would the creature set this up? But he did. He did do that. He didn't want he, the, did. he didn't want them to leave so he can take Kay. Oh, right. Kay's already pointed out that he wants revenge for the initial harpoon attack. Yeah, which is also fair. Yeah. So they end up being not able to get past this. So they try to use the winch. It doesn't work. They realize that they're going to have to go into the water. And David's like, cool, I'll do it. And Mark says, no, my dick is bigger. I'll do it. I'll come with you. (laughs) And David says, no, baby, don't. And then Mark is like, no, baby, I'll do it. So they punch out their feelings. Mm-hmm. And this is when David then goes into the water. I like that he says, I'll take the aqualung. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting title. Aren't you just using the scuba equipment you used earlier? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is fucking fight. I'm like, men, get it together. I know. Like, this is not the time. You, you need to just be working on getting out of here. But anyway. But now we have an even better sex scene than the one we got earlier because Mark and the creature yeah. are about to fuck hardcore i was just like oh wow okay they are tussling in this water it 100 percent looks like they are embracing each other like not even me being oh like yeah they're fucking each other it's like they look like these are men who are just like hugging and rolling around in the dirt like it is a full-on sex scene i mean i tried to i was like how did he die i was trying to figure that out everything i found it was just that he is mauled to death by the creature I'm like, okay so i get it i there is if you pay very close attention it's a little hard because there's a lot of silt that they've stirred up and it's mm-hmm. obviously a little bit dark I think the creature actually rips out his respirator, so I think he asphyxiates. Like he drowns. That might make sense, actually. But yeah, having a roll in the hay, (laughs) the proverbial hay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The water hay. Yeah, water hay. And it is is intimate, and Mm -hmm. it ends in a climax of sorts. It does, yeah. I will also say, like, credit to the filmmakers... All of this stuff looks really good. It's tense. It's exciting. It's shot well. Like, you can actually tell what's happening, except when you're not meant to know what's happening. In that case, it's still shot well. I think, yeah, I mean, that's the thing where we're going back to the, the discussion of how they did the 3D. Like, this is, not only are they having to film this shit underwater, and also it's mm-hmm. not even the main director. It's the second unit director doing all this. They're also having to worry about 3D underwater. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just like, oh my god. 
Mm-hmm. It's a lot. Like, this is a technically proficient film that they made it really hard for themselves, and then they delivered. Like, the film yeah. looks great because they put in the work. And I think that's a big reason why the film is still a classic today. I mean, outside of the iconic look of the creature itself, yeah. like, on a technical level, this film is a marvel. Mm-hmm. For sure. And you can you can definitely appreciate all of this underwater stuff, even in a 2021 context. Yeah. So David appears. Sadly, he is not there on time to save Mark. And we get this great shot of Mark's body just kind of slowly floating towards the surface. And mm-hmm. Kay screams, as usual. And we're about to get this line from her. So David says something, and Kay goes, Oh, sure. What's, what's an expedition without two martyrs, at least? I wrote my notes. Um... More people have died than just Mark Kay. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, only white people matter. <laughs> like, there have been, like, five murders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, she doesn't care. <laughs> this is where you're like, oh, shit, she's not any better. Damn it. Yeah. Uh, it's so true. Okay, so this is where Dr. Maya mixes up a lovely little cocktail. So he mixes up a brand new batch of this, like, paralytic agent shit. And meanwhile, as he's doing this, because of course their attention is focused on something else, the creature is reaching through the porthole and grabbing at poor Edwin, who cannot speak. This is the funniest thing I've ever seen. Like it's <laughs> very amusing. Yeah, he's like, you fucking idiots! Will you pay attention to me? No. And so I was like, are they not in the same room? And then they cut, and he's like two feet away from that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then Kay's like. Yeah. Kill hand! <laughs> I just no, love him. No like... concern about Edwin. David just reaches up and, like, bashes the arm, closes the door. Nobody checks to see if Edwin's okay. The reveal. Yo, no, no. I think this is the last we see of him, to be honest. <laughs> it is. We don't even know what happens to him. Does he recover? But Who could care? It's actually kind of a creepy moment, though, because basically we were on Edwin's face and we hear something and we mm-hmm. see him hear something because his eyes yes. move towards the porthole. And mm-hmm. it's actually a really effective creep out factor, but then, yeah, we just get that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, that poor gentleman. <laughs> uh, okay, so David decides that he's going to use himself as bait. He needs to get back into the water because they still have to winch this fucking log out of the way so that they can get the boat out. But he also <gasps> recognizes going back in the water, he's putting himself at risk. Oh my god, you said winch, and that reminds me of Anaconda when they're stuck on the rocks and they have to winch themselves free from the rocks. <laughs> Uh, 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 uh. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> like, folks, it's a double bill night. You're gonna put. A, you're gonna start with Creature from the Black Lagoon. Then you're gonna watch Anaconda, and then you're gonna send a sternly worded letter, being like, "You paid these people, right? Because you fucking stole everything." <laughs> it's, but you know, oh my god, that would actually be a really good double feature, though. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing it tonight. I'm down. <laughs> okay so david gets back in the water yes the gill man approaches him he sprays his milky paralytic agent into the water i mean he is giving this creature underwater facials yes and the creature is loving it because it keeps coming back for more you thought your man juice was gonna put me down it ain't sir it's fueling me <laughs> you're actually just attracting me right now <laughs> it's a pheromone <laughs> yeah right <laughs> wrote no my ass my gilly ass Okay, we're going to workshop that one. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you might, again, you might be attracting certain segments. Like, oh, you're gilly ass. I'm interested. I want to know. Show me a picture. 
I mean, if anyone watched The Boys season one or two when poor Chase Crawford gets skill raped by that woman. 100%. Yeah. Sexually assaulted. It's uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. Very gross, too. Anyway, not the same thing. (laughs) Not the same. No. Uh, so the creature ends up like disappearing for a bit. And this is where we do manage to get the log out of the way. I do love when we cut back to the boat, the Rita on the universal lot, this pond that they're shooting on. This (laughs) is clearly maybe a one pound tree branch that they just kind of move aside. (laughs) Like, okay, that was blocking the boat, huh? Okay. (laughs) Uh, so of course, because everybody's paying attention to this, they're not paying attention to anything else, and this is when Kay gets abducted. Because <laughs> like, she's just always by herself. Actually, okay, there is one thing that I really like about the sequel that I think works better. So the creature gets loose, and the, the, none of the actors return. We do get a little bit of Maya in the very, 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 very beginning, but it's okay. he's only in the prologue. But it's a year later, and new people have gone down to like get the Gill Man. They bring him. He escapes the aquarium, blah, blah, blah. And he is going after this new woman who's not Kay. Okay. But okay. basically, the woman and her love interest are literally in, like, the the aquarium's, like, restaurant. Like, a fine dining restaurant. And oh, wow. the creature just waltzes in and uh-huh. takes her. And, like, pandemonium happens with all the guests the patrons of this restaurant. <laughs> Amazing. It's really good. That sounds great. That reminds me of that iconic party scene at the pool in alligator where everybody's just yes drinking champagne and then the alligator kind of struts in and people freak the fuck out oh my god see that talk about a movie i've been wanting to rewatch for a long time is alligator that movie oh my god that movie is amazing again aquatic horror on patreon we talk about it (laughs) (laughs) love that movie Okay, so we're into the home stretch. I think we've probably got five minutes left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this thing, I was like, oh, there's five minutes left. It feels like we're in the middle of the third act, and there's yes. five minutes left in this movie. <laughs> yeah. So David returns to this grotto. This is where we get uh, Kay laid out like a fucking wet goddess. She looks like a rock star. And... Diva! Diva! Diva worship. So this is when the Gilman shows up and he and David have a little bit of a tussle. And David is obviously going to lose this fight. So this is where Lucas and Dr. Gaia show up and they start to just shoot it. Question though. Okay. There was a bat that flies towards David in a pseudo jump scare, which I'm assuming mm-hmm. is a Dracula bat that they had left in the prop room. Maybe it's part of the shared cinematic universe. Maybe. But okay, we've already established this grotto. The only entrance to this grotto is through water. How did a bat get in there? Do we know that there isn't a back door? There's so many back doors and phalluses. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll let you have that one. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe it's a water bat. Is that a thing? (sighs) I don't know. Don't at me. I don't care. No, but but, I mean, honestly, that's really it, right? We just get a big shootout, a big scuffle, Mm -hmm. big shootout. And Kay and David are back on the beach or the boat or whatever. They hug, and then we just get this shot of the creature's bullet-riddled body sinking to the bottom of the lagoon. And Mm -hmm. end movie. (laughs) Immediately. It was like a giallo. Our story is done. Credits. Goodbye. Thank you for coming. I mean, I appreciate it. Like, the movie knows when to get out, but I'm also kind of like, it just feels so sudden. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's so abrupt. I I messaged you. I was writing notes and just looked up, and the movie was done. Like, oh, okay. Cool. I just love it, though, because if the whole thing is about getting rid of the queerness or getting rid of the obstacles so that we can get to heterosexual love, I was astounded that we don't get a kiss, a marriage, 
anything it's like no no, we don't actually care about that we don't care if david and kate get together not at all and it's also telling the lash we've seen the creature in the water and i'm thinking cool we're gonna end on this embrace then no we have to see the creature again and Mm -hmm. that is the shot the movie closes out on because the creature is the important thing here not these fucking heteros Mm -hmm. well i i think that lends credence to the idea that the creature is not only the most important character, but the character that we're supposed to empathize with the most. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I'm also going to throw in a little bit more, uh, a little fun factoid. Um, I was unaware of this. There is a Creature from the Black Lagoon musical that yes. ap- apparently is not very good, but it's like full of camp. And it also kind of leans into weird sex things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to read some lyrics really quick. So do. We, when the creature captures Kay, he seduces her with a song about being evil. Lyrics go, my evil, you can't overstate. Like Arnold, I will terminate. Boo. I know. (laughs) And when I need to procreate, I'm a Kama Sutra fan. I don't know why that isn't right. Okay. In the meantime, the creature and Kay also sing a duet called Strange New Hunger, which is full of uh, a lot of innuendos. But there's a joke about the creature being hungry for her love. (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to lie. When I saw that and I was reading through it. I definitely got flashbacks to the American Psycho musical as well as the Carrie musical where they're not good, but they're trying and like so badly that you definitely want to see them. Yeah, I I actually, I knew the Carrie musical was a notorious bomb. I didn't know about like what the reception was for American Psycho. I think, I mean, the most successful, I feel like horror musical outside of like something like Jekyll and Hyde, I guess, like, which is like a classic musical is, um, Evil Dead, Evil Dead. Yeah, and that one is a shit ton of fun. Oh, yeah. Very amusing. Total blast. I will also recommend Cannibal the Musical, if you ever get to see that one, although it's definitely more of a comedy. Wait, isn't that one just called, like, Silence! Exclamation point? Um, No, that's the Silence of the Lambs musical. That BJ oh, the, oh, you mean, like, about. a legit... Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha I'm gotcha, talking gotcha. about Trey Parker and Matt Stone's... They have a film called Cannibal the Musical, but then they also have an actual musical adaptation of it. Oh, sorry. I thought you said Hannibal. (laughs) (laughs) Never mind. Admittedly very similar, so you're not that far off. Very true. Okay, so before I sign off, (laughs) I'm out of the podcast after this. Okay, bye. We'll see you later. I just want to do a rundown of some of these canceled remakes, and oh my gosh. Okay, so as early as 1982, John Landis wanted Jack Arnold to direct a a remake of this. So he wanted the director of the original to direct a remake of this. Okay. They commissioned someone to write the screenplay. It was completed. Um, It involved a pair of creatures, one destructive, the other calm and sensitive, being persecuted by the United States Navy. They were hmm. gonna make the film in 3D, but then when they decided that, they canceled it. Um, and by they, I mean producers at Universal canceled it for both sure. for budgetary concerns and to avoid a clash with Jaws 3D, which would have come out that same year. Oh, right, because we're back in the heyday of 3D nonsense. Exactly. Like I think that started in '82 and '83 because, like, yeah, Friday 13th 3D, Jaws 3D, Amityville 3D. Mm-hmm. And the irony here is that Jaws 3D kind of stole the plot of the sequel, Revenge of the Creature, which is literally the creature gets taken to an uh, aquarium in Florida and he escapes and wreaks havoc. (laughs) (laughs) As a gentle reminder, listeners, there's only really about five movie plots and they all just get recycled in different ways throughout the ages. And this is why it's important to watch old films. (laughs) Right? Because this is where they all start from. 
So that's 82. We're going to flash forward to 1992. John Carpenter was developing a remake at Universal. He had hired someone to write the script. Rick Baker was going to do the model of the creature. This is the big one. John Carpenter did the remake of Village of the Damned as part of a contractual agreement, I think. Like, he said, I will do this fucking dumbass Village of the Damned remake that I don't want to do. <laughs> Right. If you let me do Creature in the Black Lagoon. And it didn't happen. <laughs> so he made the movie that he was forced to make, but not the one he actually wanted. Yes, exactly. So if you watch Village of the Dan, you're like, wow, this Carpenter feels kind of off here. It's because he didn't want to make that movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's because he's spending all night sketching the creature from the Black Lagoon. Exactly. There was a new script that was written, and Universal offered Peter Jackson the director's chair in 1995, but he chose instead to work on King Kong, which is also mind-boggling to me, because King Kong was, what, 2006 when that movie came out? Yeah, but that was a passion project. I think it was. similar to probably what Carpenter was doing with his interpretation, where it's like, I think these people get an idea, and then, actually, you know what? you speculated why did it take that guy 10 years to write his story from the dinner mm -hmm. party and i wonder if that's just how some of these ideas work like you hear about it you think about it and then you have to go and work on other projects and then all of a sudden like 10 years later you think okay now is the time like maybe the effects work are better maybe i've got the money or i've got more clout or it's just like i've got this opening and i want to make this passion project you know it might be yeah it may just be like they, they all have a list of ideas and like Things just get moved down as other things come up. So, mm -hmm. I mean, again, we all have our own work ethic. Oh, sure. <laughs> so February of 96, Ivan Reitman was going to direct a remake, but that never happened. It's a lot of just, it never happened. So it's like, okay, yeah. well, was there like a quote from one of these people in a newspaper? And they were like, yeah, I want to do that. And then they're like, cool, a remake's happening. <laughs> it's the equivalent of like a screen rant thing. It's like, oh, you know, Peter Jackson said he wanted to make this movie. Oh my God, this movie's happening. It's like, no, no he yeah. just said he wants to make it. He's got no deal. He's got no contract. He's got no script. Listeners, I'm just going to reiterate, and this is something that saves me from a lot of heartbreak whenever a headline says announced be it like mm. let's say it says scream six announced no, no 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 you don't take that shit seriously until it starts production <laughs> yeah and sometimes even then we've seen things go in front of the camera and we never get to see them i'm telling you i didn't believe scream five was happening until i saw that instagram post of like production started i was like okay cool i can like get yeah. excited okay. about this now <laughs> Okay, we got another one. So The Mummy, Stephen Summers' The Mummy comes out in May 99. So that, of course, was a huge hit. Drummed up, drummed up more discussions about revitalizing the Universal Monsters. Gary Ross, the director of The Hunger Games and Pleasantville, was had right. signed on in 2001 to write and produce the remake with his father. That didn't happen. Uh, <laughs> August of 02, Guillermo del Toro comes into the mix. He was attached to direct the remake. He wanted to do the story from the creature's viewpoint and give it a romance, which, of course... He turned that movie into the 2017 film The Shape of Water, as we've discussed. Um, the, and the reason it took so long is Universal uh, rejected that concept. <laughs> they said, we're not going to let right. you do that. Because heaven forbid. The closest we got to one, and this is this is bizarre to me. It's October 05, Breck Eisner signed on, signed on as the director for this remake. He wanted to do an iconic, uh, to update an iconic image from the 50s and bring in more of a sci the sci-fi sensibility of Alien or John Carpenter's The Thing. So okay. that could have been really cool. He was going to really go for the horror of it. Unfortunately, Joe, that production was delayed by the writer's strike in 2007-2008. Oh, right. Yeah. As a result, he made The Crazies remake instead, which was number one on his project priority list. Um, he was going to finish filming The Crazies and then begin filming Black Lagoon in Manaus, Brazil. Um, but that... Again, just didn't happen. Right. 
And yeah, there's the, I mean, there's a couple more in the past 10 years. The big one is that in 2020, it was reported that Universal was considering Scarlett Johansson and Chris Evans for a remake. But again, like, I, yeah. Great assault, y'all. I don't believe <laughs> that, means that for nothing. No, it means absolutely nothing. So, I mean, Shape of Water won Best Picture of the Academy Awards. And so just because of that, I don't feel like we're going to be getting a Creature from the Black... I, my hopes are dashed. I just don't think we're going to get one of these movies anytime soon. Yeah, I think they're going to make their way through the rest of the Universal Monsters if these two competing Dracula films do any good. Oh, God, right. I forgot we're getting those. God. Uh, both by women directors, so get your excitement on. I know. I mean, I'm excited for them. Like, they're both great directors, but I'm just like, oh my god. Like, how many Draculas are we going to get? Maybe the time of the vampires is back. If it pushes the zombies down a little bit, I'll be happy for a couple of years. That's fair. I'm fair with that. (sighs) Okay, well, so, I mean, that is is Creature of the Black Lagoon. Joe, this is your first time watch. What are your thoughts on this film? (laughs) I quite liked it. I... I struggle to connect with it a little bit because of just, Mm -hmm. you know, the filmmaking style is different and it's not as adventurous. But I will say those underwater sequences are fantastic. I love doing these. I've almost said, oh, I love doing these silly readings where we put like a queer lens on it. But really, for me, this film is hella queer. And in that regard, I thought it was quite adventurous for a 1950s film, considering what was happening at the time. Yeah, I agree. I didn't like this as much as I did on my first watch. I think I was just like, I think, again, after marathoning, like, eight of these Universal Horror films, again, the originals of all of them, well, minus mm-hmm. Bride of Frankenstein, which is a sequel, of course, but I, I so ending it with this, because this is the last one, I was just like, oh, I fucking loved this, because right. I came of the opera, I didn't really love that much. Uh, I came down a little bit harder on it. I mean, again, it went from a five-star to a four-star film, so it's like, well, whatever. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but no, I, I do enjoy it. I do still think, yeah, there's a couple pacing issues, but that's also just, like, a sign of the times for me. Yeah. Like, I, I, I can forgive it. Like, again, I'm looking at it, I'm trying to look at it through a 1954 lens, not a 2021 lens. And mm-hmm. as I said before, from a technical perspective, this movie's a marvel, and I am just... Um, I don't know. I, I think it's awesome. Like, we have this awesome aquatic horror film from the 50s that is still yeah. making its mark in horror film history today. Yeah, and it's an aquatic horror film that isn't just people on top of the water. Like, proper underwater sequences, people. This film's a marvel. You're right. Yeah, I agree. Well, all right. This has been a fun little horror education discussion. Um, <laughs> <laughs> before we announce what we're covering next week, um, if you want to get in touch with us, please reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers. Join our Horror Queers Facebook group to hang out with other listeners and have fun discussions. You can find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we're covering. And also check out our YouTube channel to watch our micro queers in video format. Um, if you have a moment, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We're um, racking up a pretty healthy amount of reviews now, but we could always use more because that's Yay. great for us. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. We are almost done with June, so of course we've got a bunch of Conjuring content, like an uh, audio commentary on the first Conjuring film, a ranking of the Conjuring universe, and an episode on the third film, The Devil Made Me Do It. Uh, We'll be finishing out the month with an episode on Ilana Glazer's False Positive, the pregnancy horror film that's premiering on Hulu. Um, And then we'll have some fun July stuff for y'all, but I'm going to keep that under wraps until next week. Yes, yeah. Joe, Mm -hmm. what are we going to watch next week? Okay, so obviously, as you queued, we're about to enter a new month, but we're not quite there yet. 
I think that we should do a preemptive celebration, like it, almost like an end of the year bash or something, Trace. <laughs> so I think that we should check out those really bitchy sorority sisters who live on that there row. What's it called? It's some kind of I think row. It's, is it sorority row? Is it sorority row? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna celebrate Independence Day with a couple of badass bitches. This is a film that has racked up quite a following over the past couple mm-hmm. years. And I mean, I still hate a lot of you for not seeing it in theaters when you should have. <laughs> but because I was 100% there and, and no one was in my theater. But yeah, no, I think this is going to be super fun. This is one that's it's an enjoyable, silly, I think very aware of its silliness film. But Joe disagrees. So I think it's going to be a very fun discussion <laughs> next week. Yes, I will say I was also there that first weekend. But I've seen this movie so many more times than I ever thought I would because of you. <laughs> So everyone check that out next week. But on that note, we can cross out the creature from the Black Lagoon. Yes, and cross out horror queers. 